Good morning. How many of you um, are not on the email list for St. Paul's? Hold your hand up. Okay. And, and I know that, uh, that people get emails and don't read them. I would be among that group. But if you did not get the letter that the senior pastor sent out this week uh, about the protocol that is being proposed for the United Methodist Church that will meet in general conference in a few months, there are copies of the letter that he sent out on the table back at the back as you exit. And people have expressed a lot of concern or misunderstanding about what is going to happen when they saw misinformation in the paper in the general press saying that the United Methodist Church is going to split. And that's uh, not, that, that has not been voted on. Uh, there will be very likely after general conference those people who are in favor of more what I would call draconian or stricter <laughs> rules about our LBGTQ plus siblings, they will be allowed to exit the denomination and form a new denomination. But uh, the United Methodist Church that we are part of will remain intact and the first order of business after General Conference will be to remove that language from the Book of Discipline and to um, provide for full inclusion at all levels in all ways in the church. So that's the story. And so you can read the copy of the letter back there and um, know that that's, that's what's going to happen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So what did the librarian say when she saw that the books were in a mess. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> what is the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? One sees you later and the other after a while. <laughs> what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. <laughs> a, a cow with two legs? Lean beef. <laughs> what do you call a person who does not accept facts that challenge his or her beliefs? <laughs> Normal. It's what we all do. It's what we all do, unless we're a non-dual mind. Uh, people who especially do this are people who were taught certain beliefs by their parents or teachers or tribes. By tribes here, I mean, for example, the churches we may have been part of growing up. Probably all of us can think of things that we were taught growing up that when later tested against experience simply did not turn out to be true. I grew up. Uh, 
aware of the fact that I was, in terms of my beliefs and tribal identity, what my parents were. I knew that had my parents been born in another country, in another part of the country, in another religious grouping, in another educational grouping, or, or, or any of that, racial identity or anything, that I would be that. I was what my parents were and what my parents taught me. However, I lucked out because I got born into the doctrinally correct religion. <laughs> that's what I was told, and that's what I believed. People believe what they do because it's what they've been taught. And then there are those who want their beliefs to be true no matter what. The more such beliefs define your life, the more you will spin everything your way. And the prime example of this are politicians or devoutly religious people, including but not limited to fundamentalists. And I know it is very tempting for me to be critical of these people, but I don't believe they realize they're doing it. Just this week, someone sent me a clip of Jim Baker. You remember Jim and Tammy Faye? Jim Baker said what to me is a very ridiculous and damaging thing, but it went viral. I checked out, in, you've, you heard it, you heard it. I checked out in the Sackertry meeting this morning before first service and everybody had heard it. This is what Jim Baker said. You know what? This is a quote. Trump is a test of whether you're really saved. Only saved people can love Trump. That's what he said. Now, as I said last week, you can look back on the church from a long time ago, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, and, and criticize the church because they did not embrace Copernicus at the time, but I fully have compassion for and empathy with those people. I understand how that could happen. If your entire ecclesiastical theological system depends on those beliefs staying in place, you believe them to be true even if there is evidence to the contrary, no matter what. Now, people who put their faith not in the Pope in Rome but in the paper Pope called the Bible really resist knowing how the Bible came to be written and how it evolved over a long period of time. I, I said last week that those we call saints are people who've moved away from the reactive reptilian brain and the non-dual mind. And I want to tell you that non-dual mind is available for anyone to move into. But to become a thinker rather than a believer you have to disassociate yourself from any firmly held label. One of the things that I have said, I think, since the very beginning of my teaching is be careful of the labels you put on yourself because nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. You put the label on yourself that you're healthy or that you're young or that you're rich, or that you're married, or whatever, 
But the same thing is true with putting a label on yourself as um, I'm a Methodist or I'm a Baptist or I'm a Republican or I'm a whatever. Now, all of these are humanly constructed entities and some clearly have more value than other, but we're moving into a time when narrow, tribal, political, religious, racial, economic, educational status and all the other ways we have of categorizing others as the other are rapidly losing their usefulness. Racial differences lose their usefulness when you realize that we can all trace our heritage back to one tribe and you don't have to go that many generations back to somewhere in Africa where we all had our origin. Human consciousness evolved to the point where some prophets and mystics and sages saw that there was a better way to be human around 900 B.C., there arose all over the globe in five different geographical uh, places what I call the evolution of the religion of rightness. Now, Karen Armstrong and other evolutionary um, theorists call it something else, but um, in one way or another, in these different locales, there grew up a, a religious or spiritual tenet that said, do not do to others what you would not want done to yourself. The message in that is that there are wiser, more useful ways of being human than were being acted on prior to the time this came into human consciousness. This has not always been in human consciousness. It, it, it evolved. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. This is a good way to be human. This is a good way to ensure the viability of our species. So we want to keep this teaching. But because those two things that I have mentioned till I'm not going to mention them anymore for a while, you know, uh, cosmological dualism and individual salvation, we have to move beyond this. We keep it, but we move beyond it. Ken Wilber calls the evolutionary process that of include and transcend. We, we keep that which is valuable from the old story, but we now know, or we should know, that we need to transcend this. Shane Claiborne puts it like this. He said, we take the past like a fork full of food, and we put it in our mouth and we chew on it. We spit out the bones and we swallow that which is nurturing to the future of our journey. Now, how do we know that the old story is no longer useful? I mentioned last week when I first began practicing psychotherapy that I worked for uh, the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor, and the work I did was work with alcoholics and their families, and boy, did I learn a lot doing that. I learned, for example, that um, people who enter sobriety do so like that. Now, it may take them a long time to get there, but when they get there, they make that decision like that. And uh, I got a lot of gifts from those people and from that process. And one of the things I was gifted with at the time was a sort of poem. It's not really a poem, but it's, uh, it was a, a thing called... Um, Autobiography in five short chapters, and it was written by a woman named Portia Nelson. 
something. I want to read it to you. Five chapters. It won't take long. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in this same place, but it isn't my fault. Still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. <laughs> we have to walk down a different street. Now, why do we know this in a way that we didn't know it 50 years ago? Put your thinking cap on. Because now we have a new picture of where we live. In 1968, we saw a picture of our home. This is taken by the crew of Apollo 8. Now, this photograph is even possible, should tell us something about our species. And the deeper significance this has is the power to draw us into a reflective wonder about what this means. Carl Sagan called this the blue marble. And there it is, hanging out there in space. Now, we're going to return to this notion of this precious blue marble in the weeks and months ahead. That we even exist is a miracle. We're just the right distance from the sun. Too close, too far away, we'd burn up or freeze to death. We have just the right cloud covering. We have just the right everything to make life viable. Now, I didn't say humans, just life. Now, looking at this, we should get it that there's just one story. The truth about what is doesn't come from one single mountaintop, from one tribe, from one nation, from one understanding of God, from one religion. There is no once and forever revelation that is the complete and final story. It's no longer useful to think this way. Not if we're going to save the planet and ourselves. Now, I am not saying that religious structures and rituals won't be useful to some people going forward. But I am saying that no one has got a monopoly on what's true. The story going forward needs many voices and versions, but it has to be a story that includes everyone and belongs to everyone who lives on this blue marble. Or this blue marble doesn't have a happy future. Now, if this story is going to be everybody's story, then those seeking to construct it must tell it from the perspective of out there looking at this. At some distance from tribal influences where we can see the earth as a whole. You agree? Can I hear you say amen? amen. <laughs> I 
take up an offering in a minute. <laughs> so what do we use to tell stories? Words. We use words to tell stories. I'm fascinated, as you know, by words and their phrases, their development over time. My mother was a high school senior English teacher, and she had a major in Latin. Yes. And when I graduated from high school, and um, where I was required to take Latin, um, I didn't know what I wanted to study when I went away to school, and, and my mother said to me, well, whatever you sign up for, be sure you take a lot of English. And I said, why? And she said, well, you need to know a language other than the one you speak. <laughs> Precise. So we would play this game. This is before we had TV. Uh, where we would see who could think of a word that had more meanings than the, uh, than the word somebody else spoke of. It was a great game. And um, I would name a word and all the meanings that it could have, and she would do the same. And then she would send me off to look in this huge dictionary she had to see who had won. And I realized now that that was just her way of getting me out of her hair. But we have some words in the English language that are just absolutely fascinating. And the shorter the word, the more meaning it has. You know that? I think two of the words that have the most meaning, they're not the only two, but two of the words that have the most meaning are the words run and the word fast. Now, I'm not going to go into all of them, but just to let you know, a horse can run fast. Or you can tie a horse fast to a hitching post. Colors in fabric that don't run when you wash them are said to be fast. Not eating food for a period of time is called a fast. Someone with questionable morals can be called a fast person. You can be in the fast lane on the freeway. You can make a fast buck. You can talk fast. You can fast talk someone into a deal. You can go out and get fast food. I know a guy who's a fast talker. Who wouldn't like to have a fast friend? Oh, maybe this will put you fast asleep. Or you might think I'm trying to pull a fast one on you. The words we use matter very much because we use them to express our beliefs and thereby create our experience of reality. Now, I want to be clear, I did not just say that beliefs create, create reality. Beliefs create our experience of reality. My beliefs will not make it rain. Some people believe that it does, just to so be clear. yeah. But my beliefs will create my experience of what happens when it rains. Like, does it rain on my parade, or does it rain to nourish my garden? My beliefs create my experience. Now, I believe that one of the most important skills a person can have in this world is knowing how to use words, how to talk. Talking is a skill. Ironically, most people think they know how to talk, and though this applies to no one in this room, my experience is that most people don't know how to talk. When one person says, I think that, you fill in the blank, and the other person says, that's not what you mean. What you really mean is, you know trouble lies ahead. 
Nobody likes to be interpreted. And the experience of being truly understood in a relationship is so rare that people will pay admission for it. I have heard people say, well, my partner and I just don't communicate. And, and uh, I want to say that's impossible. It is impossible for behavior in the presence of another person not to communicate something. If I go home at the end of the day and Sherry says, how was your day? And I say, fine. <laughs> I just communicated a contradictory truth. And most people, myself included, have no idea of the emotional wake that they leave in the lives of other people by what they say, what they don't say, what they hear, what they think they hear. You're an idiot. Or that's crazy. It's not going to have a good outcome if you say it in a relationship. And, and Jim Baker is likely not aware of the global impact his statement has on being saved to people whose faith is not strong. No one likes to be directed. No one likes to be interpreted. But the issue goes way, way beyond that. And if we seek to build a context for creating and embracing a common story that the blue marble needs, we have to know about words. We have to know about their power. Right now, in our culture, in our world, things are so tense. And I guess you could say this is going forward in the Methodist church or about staff changes here or about whatever. The words that we use the words that need to be avoided are incredibly important. So as you know, for the last couple of weeks, we have had in our news media, wherever you get your news, prospects of war. War words have a, an, an incredible power to shape morality. Now, the foundation for morality that we are seeking is do not do to others what you would not want done to yourself. So I want to share with you, coming from the psychological position more than a theological one, but it is theological. Um, by the way, when, when I refer people uh, who, want, who say, I, I would like to learn more about the skill of talking, um, I refer them to a couple of places. Um, one is a book that may be out of print now by a woman named Susan Scott called Fierce Conversation. And I noticed, where is she? Brooke, hold your hand up. Brooke Summers Perry is right back there holding her hand up, is an expert in what I'm trying to communicate briefly about nonviolent communication. And you can talk to Brooke or go look her up on the, the internet. Um, one person that I, I think is important in this is a psychologist by the name of Albert Bandera because he's done a lot of work on moral disengagement. And uh, so we have heard, we're going to continue to hear in the days going forward, uh, words used in specific ways. And I just want to raise your awareness uh, on the moral engagement that, that, I mean, we have a morality involved here to care for the blue planet. And they're powerful forces that are trying to get people on both sides of, a, of an in, 
engagement, morally disengaged. And sometimes it takes decades. You look back on something that happened decades ago and you think, wow, why didn't we see that then? Why didn't we act differently then? In many ways, I feel like I'm living now in 2003. Remember the run-up for the war in Iraq? What was said, what was not said, what we look back now and know what was true and what was not true, what was withheld, what was crafted. So um, <clears throat> this talk going forward for the next several minutes is not going to have a Jesus talk in it, but I'll correct that. And by the way, yes, I am aware that last week and today my talks are a little bit longer than usual, so I'll make up for that next week and talk 10 minutes. My focus on uh, is how we care for the blue marble and the morality that is involved in not doing to others what we don't want done to ourselves. How do good people get distracted from what they say are their moral values? How do we get distracted from moral values? So I want to give you some reasons, some ways that happens. One of the ways it happens is what is called euphemistic labeling. If I'm doing something that is destructive to myself or other destructive, then I don't want to face it. I will label it in a way that justifies my behavior, right? I don't see myself as normally engaging in harmful behavior. But should I believe that I need to, I will call it something else. The, the, the big lie that parents do when they punish their children. This hurts me more than it does you. That's a lie. People don't, people don't normally engage in morally reprehensible behavior um, without having a, a way to justify their behavior and be aware that we do things in groups that we would never do as individuals, gangs, no matter how they dress, have a way to get out of hand. A person who might never agree that bombing civilians is justified may be persuaded that's okay if the behavior is framed as fighting terror or stabilizing a, re a re region. Now, you and I can look back in horror at the executions that happened in Nazi concentration camps, but there is filmed, documented evidence that the people who did this, the Nazi executioners, framed the morality of their behavior in positive terms. We were just following orders. What could be wrong with that? The soldiers who executed Jesus could say the same. It took most Americans years fully to come to terms with the morality of dropping atomic bombs on, on Japan. The estimates that I was able to find is that it, almost 200,000 casualties, 200,000 as a result of two bombs, but I remember when it happened how grateful I was for it because I was told, now we know different now, we 
history says different. But I was told this is going to end the war. And we wanted the end of the war. So somehow the moral constraints against killing non-combatants didn't get activated. person might say, I don't believe in torture. I don't believe you should torture another human being. But if it's called enhanced interrogation, it becomes something else. A second way moral disengagement happens is what we call advantageous comparison. It's a tendency to excuse my behavior by contrasting it with someone else's. Yeah, Jimmy Baker may have said what he did, but just look at what Shane Claymore did. That's worse. And then it goes back and forth. If in a war situation the enemy is already relying on what we think are immoral means, then it's not only fair but necessary to follow suit. We see the enemy's actions of aggression, enemy's actions as aggression, but what we do is necessary. Of course, those we are calling the enemy see things precisely the same way. Those we call terrorists see what they do as martyrdom. I remember seeing a, uh, a filmed interview with Osama bin Laden before 9-11. And Osama bin Laden was talking mostly at that time we thought about Russians. But it also included us. I mean, uh, by us, people living in the United States. And he said, if you saw your women and children being bombed and killed, you'd want to hit back too. Then there's what we call the displacement of moral responsibility. When uh, I was first studying psychology, I heard uh, about Stanley Milgram's work. Stanley Milgram is the man who came up with the theory of the six degrees of separation, which you've all heard about. I'm not going to go. It's a very misunderstood study in psychology, by the way. Uh, but what he's more famously known for is a study in which he got people to inflict harm on um, participants in an experiment because somebody told them to. You're going to participate in this experiment. We're going to shock these people, but I'll tell you to do it. And people agreed to do it. You can look this study up on the Internet. It's just absolutely fascinating. You know, if somebody else is responsible, then I don't have to take responsibility for my immoral choices. The point is that an entire society can do this. I see this in the, the church's current LBGTQ plus business. I know colleagues, uh, I mean, you know, good-hearted, inclusive thinking people who say when asked, would you perform the wedding for a same-sex couple? And they say, yeah, well, I'd like to. But the church won't let me. I think we need more civil disobedience. <laughs> We're going to get there. We shift responsibility from ourselves to somebody else, the president, the law. So we never have to deal with our crossing the moral threshold. And then there's what we call the attribution of blame. Mommy, Johnny hit me. Well, Mommy, he made me do it. You made me do that. So here's each side sees in a, in a conflict that what they do is a reaction to what the other side did. 
So that in the current conflict with Iran, the United States views that we are involved in a defensive struggle. We're merely responding to Iran's aggression. Of course, that is also the view held by the Iranians. Each side can say they started it. They are responsible for setting in motion a chain of events that not only includes but caused our actions. Now, if what we do seems excessive or barbaric, it's their fault. They drove us to do it. And, and, and the news media is full of this. You hear it. They hit us, we merely hit them back. We thought for sure they were going to hit us, so we hit them first. And on and on it goes. Reciprocal blame leads to an eventual erosion of responsibility. Now, sadly, it is in times of crisis that a person or a group is least likely to step back, take a deep breath, and take a critical look and compare our words and actions alongside our moral convictions. As Russell Johnson, a psychologist who's shaped my thinking about this, says, being aware of the ways our consciences get bypassed by moral disengagement can protect us from unwittingly violating our ethical and religious commitments in a conflict. So one of the things I'm trying to hold up for us to look at, examine, and hopefully embrace is what it might look like for our beliefs and behaviors to be connected to the life and teachings of Jesus in all areas of life and living. What does it mean really to love our neighbor, to see the sacred image in all human beings, to value and speak the truth, to learn how to live without being afraid and resolve conflicts by what Jesus called being a peacemaker? At the end of the day, is there a basic measure of whether we are behaving like followers of Jesus? And if so, what are the implications of this for our personal behavior and our public policy? Now, I grew up in a church, as did many of you, where the teachings of Jesus um, were never discussed as a way of life. What I was taught was that being a Christian was mostly about what you believed, not how you behaved. But Jesus himself had the desire to turn the world upside down. And so as part of that daily spiritual practice that you have, <laughs> this week, get a good translation of the New Testament and read chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. It won't take you long. And just see what Jesus' program for a new world was. Those verses in, in, we call them Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, the new Moses work, they were foundational, formational, formational and fundamental teachings of the early followers of Jesus. People call the followers of the way. Now, of course, if, of course, if one is committed, a committed believer... As you, not a behavior, but a believer, as you see in evangel many evangelical Christians today who make the news, beliefs still trump behavior, puns not intended. There are people, however, like Jim Wallace, Karen Armstrong, Richard Rohr, Sinclair, Bourne, Joan Chittister, Barbara Holmes, other people 
Those people who signed the original document of the Reclaiming Jesus document, you can go online and see what those were. But they don't make the news. I had an idea one time that I was going to write a book. I've had this idea for a while, but I never got around to it. And um, the title of my book was going to be number one national bestseller. <laughs> They'll need a title because I've made you get, it, get some attention. Um, because if you put a title like um, Peace and Justice in Our Time, ain't nobody coming. Now, the way I know that I could sell a book if I gave it the title of Sex and Something Blows Up. We like to blow things up. So the first followers of Jesus... They taught that violence of any kind was incompatible with the gospel. The early Christians were famous for their ministries of reconciliation. But after Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, the church adopted the teachings of Augustine, who said that Christians could participate under certain prescribed conditions in war. And the church developed what was called the just war theory. 800 years after the development of the just war theory, the church was telling people that killing Muslims was God's will and that if you did that, it would eventually help you get into heaven. What happened to us? Because we live in a world of terrorists, weapons of mass destruction and war, we, we read these words of Jesus at least many people do, and think, surely Jesus could not possibly have wanted us to take this seriously. It's too idealistic. So let's embrace the spirit of it in our personal lives, but not go overboard in trying to apply it in life. That's just too naive. But think about it. Every positive change, every great innovation has come from some odd individual with a naive, laughable idea. Albert Einstein, I use this line of his a lot because I think we need to hear it a lot. Albert Einstein said, no problem can be solved at the same level of thinking that created it. Humans flying like birds? Putting an end to slavery? Letting women vote? An upstart nation insisting on inalienable rights for everyone? We are a system that accepts insanity as sane and normal, like war. Every war is justified as just. And that's what we've been left with. Just war. Our task, and these are things we should undertake out of a stance of enlightened self-interest. Our task is to create a context in which two things can happen. Personal wholeness and social coherence. Or to put it in opposite language, we need to do what's required to prevent personal disintegration 
and social chaos. Now, these values of personal wholeness and social coherence are, in, are, are intertwined. Each is needed for the condition for the other. Whole persons cannot be nurtured in a context of social chaos. And a coherent social order cannot be constructed by dysfunctional individuals. I'm contending that the values Jesus taught, reflecting the best of the Jewish prophetic tradition, are good guidelines that will help us in both of these realms. Love everybody, exclude no one. So I mentioned earlier words, the use of words, the power of words, and the fact that most people don't know how to talk. Certainly when we get in the thick of a conflict, either personal or larger than that, we seem to regress to our reptilian brain habits. I've just been fascinated. I know, I know a lot of you get Richard Rohr stuff, but I've just been fascinated by how uh, Richard Rohr's emails and my thinking have been tracking the last few months. Just, and we haven't talked about this. Um, this is amazing. And so one of the things that you know if you've been getting his emails uh, lately is that he's been talking about the value of silence. And, and one of the lines that he used that is so fit for our personal, our current political context is this. Rohr said, we do not hear silence. Rather, silence is that by which we hear. Silence, or keeping your mouth shut, is a kind of thinking that truly sees. By the way, that's what the word contemplation means, to see. Silence is a form of knowing that is beyond reacting. It's a form of knowing beyond thinking. Thomas Merton said that what most people call thinking is simply rearranging their prejudices. <laughs> Philosopher Rene Descartes, he, you know, he's famously known for his line, I think, therefore I am, you know. So Descartes was sitting in a bar one day and the bartender said, would you like another martini? And Descartes said, I think not. He disappeared. But that line, I think, therefore, I am, describes Western thinking, Western mind. It's, it's the epitome of dualistic mind. We fall for the lie that we are what we think. And Jesus said no to that. Jesus said, you are so much more than that. You are a precious child of God, and so is your neighbor. And your neighbor is someone you frequently think of as an outsider, as the other So thinking has become tyrannical in our time. As we've seen and I've tried to illustrate today, words mean less and less. They mean whatever the ego wants them to mean, which puts us on a path to more cynicism, more suspicion. Someone said to me recently, I can't believe anything I hear anymore. Okay. The ego uses words to get what it wants. That's what we do when we're in an argument, don't you? We pull out all the words that give us power, make us look superior or right. And of course, at that level, words are rather useless. They're even dishonest or destructive. Sacred presence doesn't use words. Rather, not at first. It, it, it's, it surrounds us with space. The meaning of salvation, salvation means space to move around in. 
rearranging things. And that's what I mean by silence. Silence is a kind of wholeness that can absorb paradoxes and contradictions. Maybe that's why most people don't like silence. You mentioned them going to the 10-day silent retreat, and they go, oh, oh, I couldn't do that. There's nothing to argue about in silence. <laughs> it gives us something to do. The e ego likes to argue, right? It gives us something to do, prove our point, to be on the right side. The ego loves taking sides. Jesus didn't take sides except to be on the side of the powerless, the poor, the dispossessed. I think one of the reasons that I find contemplation so liberating and calming is that there are no sides to take. There's just a wholeness to rest in. And, and, and from that position to be free to act in love. So, practical application of this. Next time you're with someone and they say something that you know is as nuts as can be, especially in light of the teachings about loving the neighbor and not doing someone what you not want done to yourself, here's what you can say. You look them right in the eye and you say, And after you've said that, say, Jesus told me to tell you, I love you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry a precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.